Thank you so much. It is truly an honor and a privilege to be here. I, I, when I think of Passion City, I think of that passage where Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about a city on a hill. And uh, that's how I picture Passion City, a city on a hill that shines this message of God's grace and hope all over the planet. And so I come here with uh, awe and wonder at what God is doing through this great church. So thank you for being here. I'm privileged to be here. My wife Leslie is uh, with me as well. And uh, I got to be honest and say, um, after what happened to me in Little Rock, Arkansas, I'm glad to be anywhere. Um, Because I, I, I was in Little Rock to speak at a charity event. And this pastor picks me up from the airport, and we're driving to the event, and we're chatting along the way. And he says, yeah, he says, I, I told a young woman in our church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight. She said, oh, the guy who wrote The Case for Christ, is he still living? <laughs> I'm glad to be anywhere after that. I'm glad to be breathing after that. But uh, Leslie and I recently moved to Houston, Texas. Any former Texans here? Yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah, these smart ones came this way. Um, but uh, we got our phone number assigned to us by the telephone company when we moved into our house. And you may think, yeah, big deal. It was a big deal to us. Because no kidding, when we lived in Chicago, the phone number they gave us was one digit away from the cab company. Seriously. So two in the morning on Saturday nights, these drunk guys in bars would call for a cab. They'd misdial. Our phone would ring. It was bad enough to get waking up in the middle of the night, but then you had to get up, get dressed, get in the car. It was such a hassle. So I think we got a good number this time. I'm, I'm hoping. Uh, so Leslie and I get the opportunity these days to travel around the country, around the world, and, and talk to people about Jesus. So it doesn't get any better than that. Whether it's to one person or a bunch of people, doesn't matter. Um, but I will say, there are some times when I get into a conversation about Jesus, and it does not go well. <laughs> I had the most embarrassing thing happen. I was down south speaking at a conference with my buddy Mark, and the next day we had to fly home, so we had to get some breakfast. And we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants. You've seen these, right? I'd never been to one. He said, well, let's give it a try. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch where people sit and people watch while they're you know, waiting for a table or whatever. So in order for us to get to the front door, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman, about 18 years old, dark hair, dark eyes, young man sitting next to her, about the same age. So we got to walk in front of them to get to the door. It's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along. And just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel, looked her and asked the young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. A deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock and is just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. I began to give her all the evidence uh, for God's involvement with the cosmos, God's involvement with humankind. So I gave her the statistics, all this uh, data. I started talking about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. I'm just laying this stuff on her, and she's looking at me, and her eyes are getting bigger. And I, I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talking about Jesus, everything in human history, the incarnations, his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And she's staring at me, and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. I I turned to my friend, I said, can you believe this? Happened to walk in front of her, she said, what's a deist? My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> I really wish
wish that were a joke. That's what happened. It was, it was, she was freaking out, by the way. I'll, I'll give her that. But that was so embarrassing. But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. How do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point, right? And it turned out that she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet. And they brought us back to the hotel room where the coach was and all the athletes. And we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right. But man, that was embarrassing. That was, that was embarrassing. So when I got this kind invitation to be with you today, I thought, well, what can I talk about that, that is not going to embarrass me? And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do something simple. I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. It's a story that begins in atheism. Because I decided at a rather young age that God does not and cannot exist. I, mean, I, I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they're afraid of death. So they made up this idea of heaven and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about dying. That's what I thought. I, mean, I just thought the mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, come on, it's crazy, it wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I'm a skeptical person, it's sort of in my DNA. You know, my background's in journalism and law. Can imagine you put those two things together? What kind of a jerk, that you, skeptic, what kind of a skeptic <laughs> that you get? I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper. And we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. You know, we wouldn't accept anybody's word at face value. We always wanted to try to get two sources to confirm a fact before we print it in the newspaper. So no kidding, we had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any proof? Got anything to back that up? And that's okay. That's all right. You want journalists to be skeptical, don't you? Sometimes don't you wish they were more skeptical than they are? But my problem was that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. And I'm not saying all atheists think this way. I'm just telling you the way I looked at the world. I tend to be logical. I tend to be rational. So I said, okay, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist. Someone who just pursues pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really self-destructive in a lot of ways. That was my life. What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside of me, so much anger. And if you asked me back then, what's the deal? Why, why the anger? I couldn't have told you, but looking back, it's clear what it was. I was always after the perfect high. You know, I, I was always after the ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of rage. I remember once Leslie and I got in an argument and our, our, our little daughter was there and I had so much rage I just blew up. But I remember I reared back and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. 
And my daughter's crying, and, Al, and Leslie's crying. It was like, hey, it was, it was just another day in the Strobel house. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which is when my little daughter Allison was just a toddler. If she was alone in the living room, playing with some blocks, toys, or whatever, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be yelling and screaming and, and, and kicking holes in walls? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. Leslie was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God. And if you've seen the movie on our life, which is on Netflix, by the way, so it's free, um, <laughs> you'll know what happened. Uh, it was through the uh, relationship that Leslie developed with a Christian uh, woman who was a nurse uh, who shared the gospel with her, who brought her to church. And after many months of checking things out, Leslie came up to me and said, Lee, I made a big decision in my life. I said, what? She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. You know, for an atheist, this is the worst news you can get. Who knew what she was going to turn into, right? Some holy roller or something? I didn't know. All I knew was this wasn't part of the deal. This isn't what I signed up for. First word that went through my mind, divorce. I was going to walk out. But I stuck around, and, and what, a couple of things happened. Uh, on the positive side, uh, there were a lot of changes in Leslie and her character and the way she related to me and the kids that were winsome and that were attractive and, and kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted our old life back. I wanted the old Leslie back. And, and, and so I, I thought, what can I do to get her out of this cult that she's got involved in? And I thought, well, I got a good idea. I'll just disprove Christianity. Because then I'll get her out of this cult and we can go back to our life the way it was. And so I thought, how do I do that? How do you disprove Christianity? Well, actually, I thought this has got to be pretty easy. I think I can do it in a weekend. And here's maybe a three-day weekend. Okay, but... Because I knew the key to everything is the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he gets up before a group, John 10, verse 30. And he says, I and the Father are one. And, and the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter. Which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him. He said, well, you, you're just a man, and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But so what? I could claim to be the Son of God. You could claim to be God. Anybody can claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead... That's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? Uh, that's why the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. What was he saying? He was saying, look, Christianity is an investigatable faith. And if you investigate it and you find that the resurrection is not an actual historical event, you are fully justified in walking away from the faith. That's how bold he was. 
Well, I was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. I've seen plenty of dead bodies. I've not seen any of them come back to life. And so I thought I could easily disprove that Jesus returned from the dead. And so I want to kind of talk about what I discovered during what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation into the minutia of the resurrection of Jesus, into the historical data. And I'm going to organize the data for the resurrection using four words that begin with the letter E. That way it gives you a framework. And the reason I want to do this is a um, couple of reasons. Some of you may be like I was. You know, maybe a friend brought you today. You're not sure about this Christianity stuff. And, and so for you, I hope these four E's give you something to think about. About whether or not this is based on fairy tales and make-believe wishful thinking or actual historical truth. And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus, you know, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are always to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have and to do it gently and respectfully. And so this will give you a framework that you can always remember. If anybody asks you, why should I believe Christianity is true? You can say, let me tell you about the four E's. So what are the four E's? I want to emphasize, though, when I did this investigation, I was a skeptic. So I did not give the New Testament any special credence. Didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the word of God. I do now. But I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any ancient writings, whether they're by Suetonius or Tacitus or Josephus, you can take those same investigative techniques and apply them to the historical record for the resurrection to try to come to a verdict. Is Christianity true? And so... That's what I did for a year and nine months in my investigation. So what are the four E's that summarize the evidence for the resurrection? The first E stands for the word execution. That Jesus was dead after being crucified. And I learned very quickly as I did my investigation, there is no dispute among scholars in the field. And I'm not just talking about Christian scholars. I'm talking about the wide range of scholarship around the planet. There is virtually no dispute among ancient historians that Jesus was dead after being crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why? Because when we study ancient history, we're lucky if we get one or, or maybe two sources to confirm a fact. And yet, for the death of Jesus, we not only have multiple early first century accounts in the records that are contained in the New Testament, we've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tacitus, another early historian. Mirabar Serapion, Lucian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. I mean, this is so well established of an historical fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you came in and said, no, 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 I don't think Jesus was dead. In fact, no less of an authority than the peer-reviewed scientific medical journal of the American Medical Association conducted an investigation into the evidence for the death of Jesus. Let me quote to you their conclusion, quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. In fact, we could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, formerly of Vanderbilt University, and he'll tell you this, quote, Jesus
Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you're studying ancient history, but there are very few facts of ancient history that a skeptical, critical, atheist historian like a Gerd Ludeman will say is indisputable. One of them is the death of Jesus on the cross. The first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E, I think, is the most fascinating. Stands for the word early. We have early accounts or early reports that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that come virtually immediately after his death. Why is that important? Because like a lot of skeptics, I used to think that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 50, 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends began to develop. Mythologies were spun. Stories were invented. And that's where this idea of the resurrection came from. But what I learned decimates the claim that the resurrection is merely a legend. Follow me on this. I think this is fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed of the earliest Christians. In other words, right there uh, in the first century itself, these Christians would rally around this creed based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. And the third day he rose from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared, appeared including opponents and skeptics. Now, what's important about this creed is how immediately it developed after the death of Jesus. Remember we said it took time for legend to develop. Well, we can date this creed. How? Because the Apostle Paul preserved it for us. He wrote a letter. About 22 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. If you want to look up the creed later, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. So he writes this letter, 22 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, and in the context of how he writes it, it suggests that he had already given him this creed on an earlier visit. He was just repeating it in the letter. So we can date the creed confidently to within 20 years of the death of Jesus. Now, we could stop there, and that would be very impressive, historically speaking. When you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch, written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. So 20 years is pretty good, but we can go back earlier. How? Because we know that, uh, that Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, a hater of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. Boom, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately, he goes into Damascus and he meets with some apostles. Now, many scholars say this is when the apostles gave him this creed that he later shared with the church in Corinth. Other scholars say, wait a minute, it may have been three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two eyewitnesses to the resurrection who are named in the creed, Peter and James. And the Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians to describe this 15-day meeting, hysterese, suggests that this was an investigative inquiry. They're checking each other out. What did you know? What did you see? What did you experience? They're checking each other out. Many scholars say this is when Paul was given the creed by two eyewitnesses named in the creed. 
But either way, this means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence, and therefore the beliefs that make up this creed go back even earlier, virtually to the cross itself.